I know I said the Qatar 2022 preview episode would be the last in the series, but I had to convene an emergency meeting of the World Cup Rambling Council after that, frankly, insane World Cup final that we saw on Sunday. So here we go. Music, please. hoped it would be a great final because if you're in my age group almost nearly on the cusp of 39 an exciting world cup final is a rare thing i go back to italian 90 which obviously had the worst final ever and it wasn't until 2006 that i actually saw both sides score in the final yes in 2018 france beat croatia 4-2 looks good on paper but I always felt the French were comfortably in control of that final. I believe the World Cup final is still the biggest game in football, even though club football and the Champions League has become this behemoth. I was delighted that Argentina and France provided the match I'd been waiting 32 years to see. There were so many plot lines within the final, would Messi in his record-breaking 26th World Cup match finally do it? All four Golden Boot contenders, Messi, Mbappe, Alvarez, Giroud, were on the pitch. Who would win that race? Would Deschamps become the first man since Pozzo of Italy, 1934-1938, to win two World Cups as manager? Would France emulate that Italy team of the 1930s and the Brazil team of 58 and 62 and retain the World Cup? And who would get the golden ball, Messi or Mbappe? I was rooting for Argentina, not just because of the Messi factor, but because I've always been a fan of Argentinian football. I think 36 years is too long for a country that has produced so many great footballers, so many amazing squads. Go back and look at the Argentina squads of 1998 and 2006 and marvel at the fact that they didn't get further than the quarterfinals. But my head told me that France would be too streetwise. You know, the way they lured England in before administering the coup de grace. Deschamps knows his way around major tournaments, both as a player and as a manager, so I suspected that France would probably win. I know there was that virus going around the French camp, and Giroud was carrying a knee problem, but I didn't think much of it. Then when the final started and Argentina were all over France, first, second, third to every ball, I thought maybe the French were under the weather. There were shades of the 1998 final when Brazil, after that whole Ronaldo business, just didn't turn up. Dembele's performance was one of the worst I've ever seen in a World Cup final. And it was his foul on Di Maria that gave Argentina the penalty and Messi scored it. Argentina's second goal was gorgeous. Messi's flick round the corner to Alvarez, Alvarez to McAllister, McAllister to Di Maria, goal. And at that point, I was thinking, it's going to be a walkover. I said in the preview podcast that Messi needed his teammates to step up, just as Maradona's teammates had stepped up in 1986. And this match was a great example of it. 
De Maria was brilliant. As for Alvarez, De Paul, Fernandez, McAllister. De Maria going off in the second half was a key moment. Deschamps didn't even wait until half time to make the changes. Then Bale and Giroud got the hook, and Kolo Muani and Turam came on. De Maria's fitness was an issue, and he only lasted to the 64th minute. But when he came off, Argentina lost that potency down the left hand side. They should still have won comfortably, and then Otamendi pushes the self destruct button. Mbappe scores the penalty to get France back in the game, and he makes it. 6-6 with Messi in the race for the Golden Boot. Two of the world's great players, teammates at PSG, going for the World Cup and the individual award at the same time. Like, amazing stuff. When Mbappe scored that volley a minute later, I was shell-shocked. Like, it was a fantastic goal. That's what world-class players do. Nothing all game, and then two chances in a minute, and suddenly the World Cup final is level. But you'd expect nothing less from the man who is not only a world-class footballer, but is also the head of the French Football Federation and the chairman of PSG. There were shades of the 1979 FA Cup final when Arsenal were cruising at 2-0 and then Manchester United scored two goals out of nowhere and also shades of the 1986 World Cup final, Argentina cruising at 2-0 and then West Germany scored twice. When France equalised, I thought Argentina would be mentally gone so, sort of fair play to them. Messi nearly won it at the end, but Lloris made that great save. In extra time, the match took on Italy-West Germany 1970 proportions, and even France-West Germany 1982 proportions. And like that Italy-West Germany game, this Argentina-France game was pretty straightforward, up until the point that it wasn't, and the goals started raining in from all over the place. I was delighted when Messi forced the ball over the line in extra time for 3-2. It was Varane's backside that was playing Lataro Martinez onside. That was Messi's seventh goal of the World Cup. The narrative was loving it. Messi scoring the winning goal to pick up the trophy that had eluded him for 16 years. Messi has now scored 13 World Cup goals, the same as Juste Fontaine, the legendary French striker from 1958. Of course, it can be that simple. My heart sank when France got the penalty right at the end. Mbappe stepped up and equalised, moving ahead of Messi in the Golden Boot race and also becoming the first man since Jeff Hurst to score a hat-trick in the World Cup final. Jeff Hurst, Alf Ramsey's big target man from West Ham. Kylian Mbappe, the dashing young superstar from PSG, yoked together forever. That's what the World Cup's about. Mbappe scoring two penalties in the same match puts in perspective that bizarre discourse we had about Harry Kane taking two penalties against France in the quarterfinals. France could have won it right at the end, but the incredible Emmy Martinez, a guy who was rotting on the Arsenal bench or being loaned from club to club for a decade, produced one of the all-time great World Cup saves to stop Colo Muani. Argentina then went up the other end, and Messi crossed for Lautaro Martinez, but he skewed his header wide. Like, brilliant stuff. I tipped Lautaro Martinez for the golden boot, so that was probably the kiss of death. And then we came to the penalty shootout. Argentina have a great record in shootouts. Coming into the final, they played six at World Cups and won five, 
their only defeat coming to Germany, of course, in 2006. Mbappe and Messi traded the early kicks. Messi's kick reminded me of the one Maradona ruled in against Italy in 1990. Just that calm, nonchalant, almost jab with the inside of his foot. Then Emmy Martinez came up with the save to deny Kingsley Coman. And he also tossed the ball away when Chiamini was coming up. And as mind games worked, Chiamini dragged his kick wide. Martinez would make a lewd gesture with the Golden Glove Award, but goalkeepers are crazy and fair play to him, he's just won the World Cup. I know there's been some pathetic fake outrage about Martinez's antics. Also, Dybala came off the bench near the end and stuck his penalty away. So again, that puts into some sort of perspective the Sancho and Rashford discourse about cold penalty takers from the Euro 2020 final. And then Montiel sealed Argentina's third World Cup, following in the footsteps of the victories of 1978 and 1986. And it was Pompidou and Batista, two of the heroes of 1986, who brought the trophy onto the podium. Messi was draped in the Arab robe for the trophy presentation, a gesture that flushed out a lot of people. There were a few delete buttons being pushed on Twitter, I'll tell you. On the subject of the presentation, I'm not having this nonsense of giving out the individual awards at the end of the final. Have a FIFA awards ceremony in Geneva or Monte Carlo and sort that shit out and spare us the sight of poor Kylian Mbappe having to stand there with his golden boot when the trophy he really wants is just slipped away. The idea that Messi needed to win this World Cup to prove something is faintly sort of ridiculous. Look at everything he's won. Look at all the goals he scored. However, I think Messi suffered from the fact that he happened to come from the same country as the greatest, Diego Maradona, and he shared so many traits with Diego. So there was that demand on Messi that he wins the World Cup just like Maradona did. You know, put the nation, never mind the team, on his back and carried him through. The Argentinian public had never warmed to Messi the same way they did to Diego. I think because Messi went to Barcelona so young and they didn't have Maradona's punk rebellious streak that the Argentinian people love. And then when Argentina started losing finals, you know, the World Cup in 2014 and the Copa Americas, there was almost a hostility towards Messi that he wasn't delivering in international finals when he was still dominating the Champions League with Barcelona. That's why winning the Copa America in 2021 was so important, and he bossed that tournament from start to finish, and that opened the way to what we've seen over the last few weeks in this World Cup. And for him to come to Qatar, age 35, and make it his World Cup, it's just remarkable. He can't run the way he did when he was at his Barcelona peak, but he has such brilliant technique and an advanced football brain, so he doesn't need to run the way he used to. I don't really buy the destiny theory because everything is destined when you look at it with hindsight, but I felt from seeing Messi's recent form for Argentina that he was determined to go all out to win this World Cup. Maradona at Mexico 86 has taken on mythical proportions, so to see Messi come in, score in the group stage, score in every knockout round, 
drag Argentina through when they were struggling. It was fantastic. And 2022 will be remembered as Messi's World Cup, as 1986 is Maradona's World Cup. The other reason I was delighted with an Argentina victory was that it denied that dweeb Macron a French triumph that he could hijack and exploit to prop up his faltering presidency. (laughs) I just wish that Mbappe had told him to get lost. It's been a long time coming, but we finally had a World Cup final worthy of the name. Goals, comebacks, drama, momentum shifts, world-class players delivering. Fantastic. The greatest World Cup final I've ever seen. And well done to Lionel Scaloni, the Argentina manager. This is his first senior job, so what a way to start his career. He got all the big calls right. And remember, Argentina lost their first game to Saudi Arabia. So people were probably thinking, oh, they aren't as good as we think they are. That defeat immediately put Argentina under pressure, but they recovered and got the job done. Scaloni was able to integrate relative novices into a team with Messi as the leader in a way that previous Argentina managers had failed to do. There was a traditional Argentinian shithousing against the Dutch in the quarters, but the Dutch deserved it. You know, they always hide behind their choir boy total football reputation, but they've got a nasty streak as wide as down square. And of course, the Argentinians also talked about suffering to get the victory. Dear old Carlos Bellardo would be so proud. rehash all the controversies because as I said in the preview podcast who cares about human rights in the host country once the circus moves on. That being said I did take a lot of pleasure from the one love armband warriors capitulating as soon as they were threatened with a yellow card. It proves what I suspected all along that was all just for show so remember that the next time you see a po-faced footballer from one of those squads lecturing you about some cause. And we now know that the Germany squad was divided about the hand-over-the-mouth protest before the Japan game. The protest isn't the reason they were a complete and utter shambles at this World Cup, but the fact that the squad was divided over it can't have done much to help the unity and cohesion you need at the World Cup. England continued to take the knee, which led to the ludicrous sight of them taking the knee against the USA, where the knee originated whilst the USA players were just standing there. The England team has been conquered by American race politics, but the American team hasn't. It'll work out one out. Even funnier was the England team taking the knee prior to facing Senegal, an all-black African team. The other England contribution that my good friend Rob, shout out, drew my attention to was the England squad meeting migrant workers and having them hold up the flag of St George. It feels to me, you know, maybe I'm being harsh about this, but it feels to me like Gareth Southgate and his players have taken up the white man's burden, but they just don't realise it. Infantino made his ridiculous speech just before the tournament in which he indulged in whataboutery and false equivalents, but I find that funny because 
where the West can't criticize anyone because the West has done bad things is straight out of Twitter rhetoric 101. So it was brilliant that he actually went there and hopefully he's shown up how stupid that form of argument is. My satirical argument that British people can't criticise Qatar because homosexuality was illegal in the UK when England hosted the 66 World Cup was actually argued for real by Tony Blair. So it was nice to know that Britain's former dear leader listens to World Cup rambling. There was a lot of controversy about the alcohol ban, but I read various articles saying that women felt safer with the ban in place and they had a better football experience than usual. So do we accept that the ban, no matter how crass and ham-fistedly it was introduced, was actually a good thing? Discuss. I think it was Alex Scott on the BBC saying in her really earnest manner, we need to have these conversations. The gang, me, Rob, Soupy and Bedwell, did have these conversations in the build-up to the Wales versus USA game on the first Monday of the tournament, and very illuminating those conversations were too. We'll see in the future if Qatar 2022 sets a new standard for how international tournaments are covered. The next World Cup, which I've dubbed Mexican America, is being co-hosted by three countries which have problems in further commas these problems a lot of them are admitted by the people who run those countries so i'll be waiting with bated breath to see the coverage after all we wouldn't want the qataris thinking there was something uniquely awful about them hosting the world cup Marvellous that Messi finally got his hands in the World Cup, but I think the best story in this World Cup was Morocco. They were in turmoil just months before the tournament started. The manager, Walid Regragi, got the, um, hope I pronounced that right, he only got the job in August after the sacking of the previous manager. Regragi was nicknamed Avocado Head by Skeptical Pundits, shades there of Graham Turniphead Taylor, so... Don't fall into the trap of thinking that the English press is uniquely tough on its national team. Ziyech came back into the fold and Morocco were built on firm foundations. They got to the semi-final with only one goal conceded and that was an own goal. Bono was one of the tournament's outstanding goalkeepers. Hakimi, Aguerd and Saiz were all stars too and they were reinforced by Amrabat's energy in the middle. It was fitting that Morocco became the first African and Arab nation to reach the semi-finals. Morocco have always been World Cup pioneers. The first African team to get a point, 1970. The first African team to get out of the group and win the group, both 1986. Within my social circle, or social quadrilateral, I should say, there's only four of us, we have this term called the Pan-African Ideal. And I'm known for being sceptical about the Pan-African ideal. I mean, what does Morocco have in common with Uganda? What does South Africa have in common with Senegal? What does Angola have in common with Eritrea? But all that being said, 
I was delighted to see an African representative in the semifinals for the first time. World Cup rambling supports the footballing advancement of continents that have been previously derided. And frankly, World Cup rambling is sick and tired of robotic European teams clogging up major tournaments. So hopefully Morocco has shown the way and we'll see African teams in the last four becoming a regular thing. I'm just going to have a run-through of the teams that I name-checked in the preview podcast, just to see how they got on and how close my forecasts were. France massively outperformed my expectations. It was the best performance by a defending champion who didn't go on to win it in the end, getting all the way to the final and only losing on penalties. I thought the injuries and some of the -the behind-the-scenes issues would add up to an underwhelming title defence, but fair play to Deschamps. He risked Varane, who was excellent. Griezmann reinvented himself as some kind of deluxe all-round midfielder, doing great defensive work, as well as contributing to the attacks. His lacklustre performance in the final was one of the reasons France struggled for so long against Argentina. Olivier Giroud broke Thierry Henry's goal-scoring record, and he's finally started getting the credit he deserves. All those years, I used to think he was the one holding Arsenal back, but actually it was Arsenal were the ones holding him back. Mbappe was brilliant, dragging France back into the final and winning the Golden Boot. Of the new stars, Chiumene and Colomuani stood out, and if Lloris knew how to get anywhere near penalties, France might have won it again. England's campaign went exactly as I expected. I said they'd win the group, with one coma-inducing performance along the way, and then get eliminated by their first elite opponent. And I actually name-checked France as a possible hurdle too many for England. And I was proved right. The coma game was against the USA, and France were too strong for them in the end. I've heard people say that Gareth Southgate is England's most successful manager since Sir Alf Ramsey, which is true. But it's also like saying in 2004, Tim Henman is the most successful British men's singles tennis player since Fred Perry. It's true, but the trophy still hasn't been won. There is a touch of Tim Henman about Gareth Southgate, which I said in a podcast last year. Nice guy, speaks well, he'll get you thereabouts, but can he actually get you there? I find the discourse surrounding England's exit to be very strange. Listening to some of the chatter in the aftermath, you'd think they were a Brazil 82 or a Holland 74 type team, unfortunately cut down in their prime. It's true that they went more on the front foot against France than they did against Croatia at the last World Cup or Italy in the Euros, but you know they had to because they were behind in this game, unlike in those two other games where they went ahead and then sat back. There was a lot of talk of England having made progress. Well, They went out a round earlier than the last World Cup and two rounds earlier than the last Euros. So, you know, maybe I'm being obtuse, but what exactly is Southgate being judged on? We'll wait and see how the team develops with that core of Bellingham and Saka, who were both great, and then Foden, Rice, Gallagher. There is a basis of a strong team there for the Euros, although all countries have young talent, so... England's rivals aren't going to be standing still in that department. I also said that I thought Harry Kane was the only player who actually performed consistently, 
So, you know, that was probably the kiss of death on the second penalty. There's not much I can say about Brazil. In the preview podcast, I said we'd find out about Brazil once they ran into strong European opposition, and so it proved. Add Croatia to the lengthening list of Brazil's executioners. For the fifth World Cup in a row, they didn't have what it took to beat European opposition in the knockout stages. And by the time the next World Cup comes around, it'll be 24 years since Brazil's last victory, the same drought they had between 1970 and 1994. I said that Germany and Spain were two countries both looking for an identity since they fell from the summit of world football. Neither of them have found it. Both of them are learning that those golden generation players don't grow on trees. Germany's reputation as the two-year manshaft has gone up in smoke in the last four years. They're still suffering from not sacking Joachim Love in 2018 and wasting all those years in the lead-up to Euro 2020 when they should have been rebuilding under a new manager. There were rifts in the camp with Hansi Flick being accused of bias towards his old Bayern Munich players, and there was also the division about the hand-over-mouth protest. And also, they don't have any great strikers. Germany, going all the way back to Edmund Conan in 1934, oh, that's me mining my World Cup knowledge, they've always had reliable tournament strikers, and Miroslav Klose seems to have been the last of the line. What I find most alarming about Germany's decline over the past four years is the lack of character, lack of resilience, lack of fortitude. I texted Big Marty, shout out, after Germany went out, and I said that Thomas Berthold and Guido Bugfold wouldn't have let this happen. And when I was tweeting Big Jim, shout out, I said to him that Say what you like about Yup Derval's 1982 Pantomime Villains. They wouldn't have let this happen. You know what I'm getting at. These big, mentally strong characters who know how to get the job done when their backs are against the wall. I think Germany have lost a lot of that over the years. And it'll be interesting to see how they go when they host the Euros in 2024. As for Spain, they seem to have the guidebook for 2008 to 2012 but they haven't read beyond the chapter that says, pass the ball. As in Russia 2018, it was another death by a thousand passes. I only saw the penalty shootout against Morocco, but when I was following the live updates of normal time and extra time, and it was saying that Spain had lots of the ball, but they weren't creating anything, you could almost lay money that they wouldn't score. Sleepwalking to their own demise yet again, and they couldn't even score in a shootout. Hopeless, boring, useless. Croatia and Belgium, they were in the same group, and I didn't think there'd be much between them, but it turns out there was loads between them, and I'm glad there was. For a country the size of Croatia, you usually have one great tournament, if that, and then disappear into the wilderness for decades, but they've reached the final and the semi-final in consecutive World Cups, which is a remarkable achievement. Modric is such an iconic player, one of the greatest midfielders of all time, and I hope he plays on for them. But Livakovic, the goalkeeper, he was great, as was Guardiola, the young defender. They're a resilient bunch to Croats with their ability to get through tournaments off the back of winning penalty shootouts. Shades of the old West Germany and the Argentina team of 1990. As for Belgium, I don't really have to say anything because Kevin De Bruyne already said it, too old. 
Their last chance of winning something was at the last Euros, but even then, the sands of time were running out. What a waste. such a foul odour attached to this World Cup and the questions and the controversies will rumble on, well at least until the Premier League resumes he said cynically I was on a downer going into this World Cup but as a football tournament I thought it was great maybe with the tournament being in the winter players were in the sweet spot of their form and not burnt out which is always the claim about summer tournaments Usually when you have as many shock results and shock exits as you had in this World Cup, you end up with some really lacklustre, predictable matches as the tournament goes on, like in 2002, but that didn't happen this time round. I actually did predict that some big names would be caught cold by the quick turnaround from the club season. The climax to Spain, Germany, Japan, Costa Rica, when the qualification permutations changed with every goal was an unforgettable night, as was the climax of Group H when South Korea's comeback against Portugal left Uruguay and Suarez in tears. FIFA being FIFA, they've set out to ruin it with their ridiculous 48-team farce for 2026. This is the last 32-team tournament, so you can box off this 1998 to 2022 era and do the rankings if you like. I would rank this tournament higher than 2002, 2006, 2010, even though I went to that one, and 2018. So it's quite high in my personal echelons for 32-team World Cups. I do think this 32-team era has seen all the romanticism squeezed out of the World Cup. Adam Hurry, the football cliches guy, wrote a great article for The Athletic about how the aesthetic of World Cups has have all become the same and that you know the tournaments all look the same. I would chase that back to nineteen ninety-eight when you started having identical stadiums, identical pitches, identical goal nets, and identical TV presentation. I think USA ninety four was the last World Cup with a unique feel to it. It feels like the globalisation of the World Cup has led to homogeneity. It's almost like there is no such thing as a Qatar World Cup or a Russia World Cup or a Brazil World Cup. It's just the FIFA circus. It plunks itself down in a different place every four years, but everything is the same. That's a very profound note to leave you on. Thanks for listening in 2022. I'm, I'm definitely signing off for the year now. I'll be back in February 2023. So until then, vamos, vamos, Argentina. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Mamontiel! Montiel!
Argentina campeão do mundo! Argentina campeão do mundo! Argentina! É campeão do mundo! Deve ser Luiz Aguirre! Luiz Aguirre! Luiz Aguirre! Luiz Aguirre!